If any of you like to see my wife with her legs up on the pew, look now. Okay? Yay. I understand you've been preaching from here. Yeah. okay if we take a page out of Dave's book and preach from here rather than up there? I, I you know, when we were here nine years ago, um, it was kind of the thing to do to preach from up there, and it was great. Uh, I, I said this morning, uh, when several of us were here early, this is an interesting room because even if you are up there, this is what I felt years ago, even if you're up there, there's an intimacy in this room that made me feel like I was being able to communicate and connect with those of you even in the back. And you don't get that in too many sanctuaries that are built the long way, but this is, this is good. But I'm glad to be down here now because nine years of age, it's harder for me to climb those steps. I never did. <laughs> All right. Um, I would like to share with you some words today, very important to me. I hope they're important to you. This time of year always, for some reason, always brings me back to, to wanting to kind of check myself against the rock-solid truth of God. You know, what are the, the basic foundation stones of my faith, our faith together? And I don't know about you, but I have to keep coming back to those basic things and anchoring myself again to make sure that I'm, I'm standing foursquare on the truth of God. It's even more important today than it's been for a long time for me um, I have no Lutheran background, but you don't have to be a Lutheran to know what's happening today or to remember what happened 500 years ago this coming Tuesday, two days from now. A 33-year-old Augustinian monk who was faithful to God and faithful to his church but understood the glitches in his church, you know who I'm talking about, Martin Luther, he had had it up to here. And in Sunday school today, we were talking about, you know, when you get to a point in your life when you don't know what to do, for goodness sakes, be honest and say that. I don't know what to do, but God, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. Jesus, I'm going to follow you even though I don't know what to do. And Martin Luther 500 years ago, this coming Tuesday, did exactly that. He was struggling with his church. He was struggling with the theology, the doctrines. He was struggling with, with the practices of his church. Faithful to Jesus, faithful to his church. Wanted his church to be better than it ever had been before. And finally, one morning he got up, October the 31st, 1517. He went to his workshop and he got out a hammer and a nail. 
and he walked down to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, because the church door was kind of like the community bulletin board. So if you were doing a 500 years ago, if you were having a flea market, or if you just had fleas, you could put that up on the church board, on the, on the door. And if you're having a meeting, you could put that up on the door. And, everything. and he had what we come today to call the 95 theses, or 95 ideas, 95 suggestions about how to make the church better. And he nailed those to the door. And he became a reluctant reformer and ushered in a cataclysmic event which we call in church history the Protestant Reformation. And if Martin Luther had not done that 500 years ago now, and there were others like him thinking the same, saying the same thing, if those courageous men and courageous women of that 16th century had not been willing to put themselves on the line for Jesus Christ, there's a good chance you and I would not be sitting in this room today doing what we're doing. So, with that in mind, I want to take you beyond today to 1521, beyond 1517 today, nailing this treatise to the wall. About four years later, when Luther was really in trouble, and was called to a major church conference where they were after his head. He was told, either recant, take back what you say about the church, or we're going to excommunicate you, and uh, we probably got some hitmen waiting in the parking lot. And Martin Luther said something that has gone down in Christian history for these last nearly 500 years, he simply said, here I stand, I can do no other. Here I stand. I want to stand on the rock-solid truth of God. I don't know what else to do, but I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to keep my eye on him. And he'll lead me and anybody else that's coming my way, he'll lead us through together. And what I always do this time of year is I go back and check myself against a few basic beliefs and I'd like to share those with you briefly today I start with what it says in the word of God in 2nd Timothy 3:16 I believe that the rock solid truth of God is that his bible is his word of God, and I'm going to start right there, because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Holy Spirit told Paul to write these words, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, useful for teaching, useful for rebuking, useful for correcting, and useful for training in righteousness. And by the way, if we add the next verse, it becomes a full thought. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for these things so that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
I have to make sure after over 50 years in ministry, I still need to remind myself and make sure that I'm standing on the Word of God. Here I stand, that the Bible is the Word of God. It's not words about God, but it is what God says to us. I don't understand everything in the Bible. I'd be, a, I'd be stupid to try to make you believe that I have complete understanding of every thought and every idea and every hope and every aspiration and every warning that God puts in his word. I don't understand it all, but I stand on it because in the experience of life, it is the only thing that has consistently made sense. And I know as a church historian myself that down throughout the ages, mankind has tried to bury the Bible, but it has outlived its own pallbearers over and over again. I was, the other day, I was just trying to make a quick list of the pallbearers for the Bible. And my goodness, they are numerous, but I'm just going to remind you of a few. Voltaire, Thomas Paine, Karl Marx, Adolf Hitler, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, remember her? Friedrich Nietzsche, the nihilistic German philosopher who used to go around, he was crazy, and he used to go around Germany writing in chalk on walls, God is dead. The story is that you know, Nietzsche did die, and the story is that one day somebody was going through the cemetery where he was buried, and there was Nietzsche's tombstone, and mysteriously there was a chalk writing on the tombstone that said, Nietzsche is dead. Sign God. And Stephen Hawking and 90% of the Hollywood crowd who would like to bury the word of God and it will not die because it is God speaking. His mind, his heart to us. I'm willing to stand on that rock-solid truth. Are you? I also believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm not going to try to explain, you know, who Jesus is beyond that for today, but listen. I read the Word of God. I listen to the Holy Spirit who lives in me. I don't listen perfectly, but I hear enough to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It says that in Luke chapter 135 when the angel Gabriel explained to Mary what was going to happen to her. And he just basically said, listen, the one that's growing inside of you, that will be born of you, he will be your son here on earth for a few years, but he is for all eternity. No beginning and no end, the son of God. And he will come and do what he should do for you. And I had somebody say to me one time in a class that I was teaching, they said, well, it only says in Luke chapter 1 that he is the Son of God. And I said, you're nuts. 
I mean, all you have to do is read John chapter 8 or Mark chapter 14 or Matthew chapter 26 or the book of Romans or the book of Acts. or the <laughs> You just go and go and go and go and you understand who Jesus actually is because God said that's who he is. And I oftentimes wonder how many times must God speak the truth before we are willing to believe it. But I understand that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm willing to stand on that rock-solid truth, and therefore, him being the Son of God and me not, <laughs> I'm willing to let him do what he wants to do in my life. And I stand there. Hope you do too. The third thing I always check is to make sure that I remember correctly that Jesus Christ died for my sin. That he was willing to be that sacrifice. You go to Romans chapter 5 verse 8 and I'm not going to take time to read it because you either know it or can find it quickly. But in the book of Romans, Paul talks over and over again in this whole section on justification by faith. In the book of Romans, he talks over and over again about why and how and what it means for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die for my sin and for your sin. And one of the things that I understand when I read the Bible and I read the story of Jesus and I read the writings about Jesus inspired by the Spirit himself through the apostolic writers, I understand that Jesus is not merely a teacher, a religious teacher. And he is not merely an example, even a holy example. And he is not a moralist or an ethicist. And he is not just a martyr for a cause. But he is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for your sin and mine. And I want to stand on that truth as a foundation for my life as a man and for my call to God's ministry. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross to forgive my sin and yours and to save me and you, you and me. And he alone can deal with our sin in the singular and all the particular sins that come flowing out of that reality in my life. He alone can deal with my sins and my problems and my issues and my needs and the injustices of my life and yours and the loss and the gain that we so desperately need and want. He is the only one who can give it. And I compare what he does on the cross with what the world does in its best humanitarian impulses. Because, I mean, let's, let's, let's not get all pious on each other. The world out there does a lot of good things. We think it's a pretty crummy place, and it is because it's the dominion of Satan right now, but there's still a lot of good stuff that goes on. I scandalized a group one day when they were telling me about how the world never does anything good. And I said, what is the best organization for taking care of widows and orphans? 
And they gave me all the usual, and I said, That's, those are good organizations that take care of widows and orphans, but do you know who does the best job of making sure that widows and orphans have how, good housing and good food and good education and kids go to college and have opportunities in, in jobs and everything? Do you know who it is? The mafia. Yeah. The widows and orphans that they create, they're honor-bound to take care of the survivors. They do a tremendous job. But here's the problem. And that's true, by the way, I think. But here's the problem. No matter how good the world is at trying to take care of our needs, it's kind of like the world is sweeping out the cobwebs but forgets about the spider. Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and his life, this new life that he wants to give us, it's the only thing in this world that takes care of the spider and not just sweeps a cobweb away to be replaced again tomorrow or tomorrow or tomorrow. I want to stand upon his death and resurrection. I want to stand upon his cross in his empty grave. Amen? And this church must remember that as well. See, I'm not saying anything you don't know, but how often should be we be reminded of this? Make sure we're standing on this. Christ rose to give us eternal life that changes things. Christ arose to give us eternal life that changes things now. We don't have to wait till we die and get to heaven or he comes back and raptures us away. We don't have to wait until then to receive the fullness of his life changing presence. The evidences are too numerous and too exact to be untrue. What we say is true. Let me tell you a quick story. I told, I told people yesterday I wasn't going to give you a mission update, but I'll give you a mission story. Sue and I were in South Africa. You know, we, 10 years or so, we wandered around the bush of South Africa teaching preaching, helping to plant new churches, doing evangelism. Uh, best evangelism in Africa in those days was an AIDS funeral. We were in South Africa at when, when the crest was rising in the AIDS epidemic of sub-Saharan Africa. And when we went there, if I did a funeral, maybe one in ten funerals was of an AIDS patient. By the time we left, nine out of ten funerals were AIDS patients. So when we did a funeral, usually on a Saturday or a Sunday, we would put up a great big circus tent that would hold 500 people, and we would start, not, not Sue and myself, would start dancing and singing, but the African Christians would start dancing and singing and praising Jesus, and it was better than a hundred hootenannies. And we would take part of it. And I, I did the bishop's dance. And the bishop's dance is this. 
That, that's about all I could get out without something falling off, you know. But they would start singing and dancing. Everybody in the surrounding area knew somebody had died, and the casket was there, just a kind of little homemade type casket thing. And we were going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we were going to take that dead person and carry him over there and bury him in the lot behind their house where the cattle graze. And then we were going to have meat. Yes, they had funeral dinners. And about the only time our people had meat to eat was when they went to a celebration of some kind, a funeral, a wedding, the installation of a chief or a paramount chief. Or, then the, and so guess what? By the time it was my turn to preach, we'd have the tent, the 500-seat tent, 1,000 people in there and another 500 to 1,000 outside the tent. No microphone. But you'd preach the gospel, and as I was saying this morning to a couple of guys, we learned to preach hot. That's a phrase in Africa. Brother, when you go to preach today, preach hot. And so we'd preach hot, and praise God, there were more people converted at the funerals, legitimately converted, than probably any other place in time because they were face-to-face -face with death. So we're preaching funerals, we're teaching, planting churches, training African pastors. Went to a place called Six Trees where I was going to be doing a couple of, of teaching courses for pastors in the making. And I walked in and there was a, the number of very bright-faced young African men who were feeling the call, knowing the call of God, and they wanted to get their first Bible course and their first basic course on how to be a pastor. And they were all there, and then they kind of all went like this. And I turned and looked, and sitting in a chair over here, leaning up against a wall, was an older man, probably about 50 years of age or so, built like a brick outhouse. Guy, when he stood up and shook my hand, the guy was only about this tall, but he must have gone 250 and there wasn't an ounce of fat on him. And he had scars on his face and his hands were like meat. And when he shook my hand, he picked me up off the ground. I mean, I was one of those kind of guys. And I said my name and spoke to him in the little bit of Kosa I knew and he introduced himself as Johnson Umdolo. And all the other younger men were kind of looking very tense. And I said to Johnson Dolo, you're here for the class? Yes, he said, Away, yes, I'm here for the class. God has saved me through his son, Jesus Christ. And I have been forgiven of my sin. And God has called me to preach the gospel that I once hated. And I want you to teach me. And I said, you are welcome, brother. And we had the first couple of hours, and then it got to be tea time, and Sue and some of the women were serving the students tea, and one of the guys came over and said to me, do you know who Johnson Mdolo is? And I said, no, I, professional wrestler, <laughs> you know. 
He was the tribal hitman. If you had a problem with somebody and you wanted to get rid of them, you paid Johnson Dolo, and they'd disappear. And for about 25 years or so, he was the informal executioner for this tribe of 500,000. True. And yet, it was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that alone that turned Mdolo the killer into Mdolo the son of God, the child of God, the servant of God. He didn't have a lot going on upstairs, but he stuck around and he took the courses and you could tell his heart, <laughs> the change that came in his heart was the most important thing. Yeah. And I always envisioned, I don't know where he is or what he's doing today, but I always envision that when John Dolo stands up to preach the gospel, people pay attention. And when he gives an altar call and he looks at you, you probably want to come down front and kneel. But God changed that man's life to the eternal life given in the resurrection of Jesus. And he is wandering around Africa someplace today preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen, indeed. They stand on these things. They're important. We come back and need to be reminded of these things over and over again. I've been a Christian for many, many years. I've been a pastor for 51 and a half years, a missionary, a theologian, a church historian. But none of that matters if I don't stand on the rock-solid truth of God. And so I keep reminding myself, and maybe God sent us here today, this weekend, to remind you to make sure your faith, your experience is standing firm. There's one more thing that goes with this. That is, I do believe that a person must personally decide about these things. I read over and over again in the Bible, you know, in the Old Testament, it talks about walking through the valley of decision. Billy Graham used that whole concept to publish magazines for years and years and to remind people in his ministry of the necessity of choice, the necessity of decision-making. And I want to leave you with this idea. In Revelation 3.20, it simply says, I love you so much, I want to get as intimate with you as I can. Right? Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open the door, I will not just hand you a flyer or invite you to my church. But what does Christ say? The risen Christ said, the glorified Christ said, I'll come in and eat with you. I'll come in and sit down at your table. We'll go eye to eye, nose to nose, we will know each other. We will cry together. We will laugh together. 
we will love one another through thick and thin. And that's what being a Christian is all about. But you know, it takes a decision. We know his decision. He's told us his decision is to do that. But it takes our decision to let him in. And I'm not talking about first-time salvation. The great majority of in here, you've given your life to Jesus Christ, but I'm talking about that lifestyle of opening the door, eating together, living together. You know, the African pastors say, preach hot. We taught them also to say, live hot for Jesus each and every day. How do you do that? Well, for anyone here this morning who has never thought about or has resisted giving their life to Jesus Christ, it's very, very simple. You admit that you are a sinner. You about face and repent. You accept what Jesus did for you on the cross when he came from the empty grave, when he promised to fill you with his spirit and when he promises to come in and live with you in the most intimate atmosphere so that you will know that you're known and that you are worth something to him. And then you ask him in. Just some simple words that start with A. Admit, about face, accept, and ask. And if you ask him to come into your life once and for all in that intimacy that only he can give then we'll add one more A you will understand that you're adopted and you are adopted forever see that's important to me because I'm married to an adopted woman an adopted one month old baby that came to Indiana God knew all those years ago, I finally got her when we were in high school. Yeah. So I understand the power of adoption. I live with it every day. And it helps to remind me when I look at my wife of that relationship that Jesus wants to have with each one of us. So I leave you with this. Here I stand today reminding myself and hopefully reminding you of just the rock-solid truths of God. I've learned this in life. Listen, it's an old cliche, but it's true. If you don't stand for something, what? You'll fall for anything. If you don't stand for the truth of God, if you don't stand for the things that are right and good in God, then you will fall for anything. So my prayer is, that in a minute you're going to sing again as we close our service, and I bet you Keith's going to ask you to stand up. So I'm going to ask you to think about, here we stand together, not just to sing the closing hymn so we can go eat, but here we stand together on the rock-solid truth of God and the presence of Jesus in our lives. Amen? Amen. I'm going to sit down and shut up. Thank you. God bless you.